Want to help your teachers save over 10 hours per week? Introduce them to School AI. It's not just a tool, it's a partner in the classroom. With School AI, teachers can plan courses in minutes, get real-time learning data, and provide one-on-one -on -one tutoring. Plus, it's free for teachers. Visit schoolai.com today. School AI, the classroom operating system of the future. That's schoolai.com. Focal Point K-12 is an innovative tool that helps teachers and students manage student portfolios. It provides a digital portfolio for students to store their work, set and track their own learning goals, and earn credentials and industry certifications. The platform also uses blockchain technology to ensure the security and safety of student data. Teachers can use Focal Point K-12's real-time dashboards to track student progress and save time with AI-assisted scoring. To learn more, visit focalpoint.education. Principles. Research shouldn't be a maze for students. Scribble offers a unified platform streaming the research and writing process. It integrates with major educational tools, ensures authentic student work, and provides educators with real-time insights. Elevate your school's academic rigor. Learn more at scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L-E.com. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I am your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Welcome to the Transformative Principle podcast. I am honored today to have Nancy Giordano on the program. This is part of the Summer of AI series brought to you by AILeader.info, where you can learn all about AI in a safe, supportive community that is focused on school leaders and applications of AI to school environments. Nancy is a exponential strategist focused on building a safe, inclusive, and thriving future. Believing we have a once-in-a-generation opportunity to rethink, reimagine, and reshape every industry and social construct we call life, she supports and champions those actively architecting bold solutions and guides the visionary leaders eager to meet this call. An active strategist working on Horizon Solutions, Nancy is eager to share her insights on emerging technologies and shifting cultural expectations in ways that get everyone deeply motivated by the possibilities and confident to start building. Nancy, welcome to Transformative Principles. So grateful to have you here. Thank you. And I think for this audience, it's actually, I'll add to my bio that I'm also the mom of three now young adults, ages 20 to 26. So I also describe myself as a futurist mom. A futurist so. mom. That's very good. I like it. So tell us what an exponential strategist is, because not everybody knows what that <laughs> even means. You know, it's funny because my, my middle son, when he came home from middle school many, many years ago, and they'd done all that career assessment stuff where they have to figure out, you know, ceramics engineer or forest ranger. And he looks at me and goes, you made up your job. Like, yeah. And we should continuously make up our job. So until recently, I described myself as a strategic futurist, right? Helping us figure out how to go build this future that we saw emerging. But the future is now. We are here. So I don't know if I've given myself a promotion or a lateral change, but I now describe myself as an exponential strategist because it's about learning to build with these exponential technologies. Like we're in it right now. How do we learn to do so safely, confidently, both individually and on a system-wide basis, right? As a society, how do we open our aperture around that? So we have to think really, really differently 
in this era that we are in now, not just the one that we keep envisioning is going to be somewhere on the horizon. Yeah. And we're going to get to the AI stuff in a second, but I really appreciate this life hack of making up your own job. I think that is so incredibly powerful and something that I feel like I've done as well. I haven't come up with a great title for mine yet, but I really get to spend my days doing the things that I really enjoy coaching school leaders, supporting them, teaching people about different things like AI and speaking and writing books. And it's just great. I really like it. But even as a principal, I felt like I needed to define what my job really was. And that if I fell into the trap of just being a middle manager in a bureaucracy, then it would suck the life out of me, which for the first couple of years it did until I really realized what I was trying to do. So what advice do you have for someone who is a school principal or aspiring school principal or even a teacher, because teachers are listening to this too, what would be your advice to help them make up their own job even if they have a specific job and it's clearly defined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's labeled. I don't know if it's defined, right? There's yeah, a label on yeah. the job. And then you can decide what how you want to define it. So first of all, it's recognizing like what it actually, you know, that's a, a label someone put in a construct that has existed for a long period of time, but the role and the intent of it and the way that it's expressed needs to change over time, as we know. And for me, I use a compass. I describe the fact that we can't use a map anymore. It's outdated. But if we're in this moment that's changing so dramatically, how do I navigate it confidently? And I have a compass, which is just these two questions which guide all of that, which is what does the future need and expect? And do I understand that? Do I see the forces that are shaping it? Do I understand the trajectories? And then mapping that against so what am I in unique position to create and contribute? So as a principal, it has to do with your community. It has to do with the age group that you're in. It has to do with the resources that you have. Like there's a very unique constellation of things that you are being asked to steward. And so if you can map that against what the future needs and expects, or let's say the moment needs and expects, right? The moment that we're in right now, maybe I have to revise that question. As where things are headed, like how do I map the need against my unique ability to meet that need? And when I talk about it to corporate audiences, I say it's as an individual, it's as a team, it's as an organization, it's as an industry, it's as a nation. Like you can scope that as broadly as you want. So again, I'm constantly rethinking about where I put my energy and my time. Mm -hmm. Where is it that I think that I am of most service right now? Time is a precious commodity. As a principal, you know this all too well. Between lesson planning, grading, and providing personalized feedback, the hours in a day can quickly disappear. What if you could help your teachers get some of that time back? Introducing School AI. School AI is not just a tool, it's your teacher's partner in the classroom. Help your teachers save over 10 hours a week on busy work, allowing them to focus on what they do best, teaching. With School AI, teachers can plan courses in minutes, get real-time data on learning, and even provide one-on-one tutoring for every student. School AI also provides a FERPA-compliant chat GPT experience. But that's not all. School AI's co-teacher feature is like a personal assistant, adapting daily lessons to student interests, checking for understanding, and even automating parent communication. And the best part, it's free for teachers. So if you're ready to reclaim your time and transform your school with the power of AI, visit schoolai.com today. School AI, the classroom operating system of the future. Visit them at schoolai.com. As we transition into the AI conversation, one of the things that I think is so valuable is I use a compass analogy as well. You've heard the phrase sage on the stage when it refers to teaching, that the teacher's up there, has all the information. Well, we transition to what is called a guide on the side. And now I think that we're in a space where 
the teacher needs to be a compass among us and she needs to guide, help kids know when they're off track, help them find their way back without actually being the one to have all the information because they can't, it's impossible for her to have everything. A hundred percent impossible, right? And we are working through our way together. And to your point, being able to sense and respond. That's why I think that what a compass does. It allows you to take in information, respond and understand against hopefully a North Star. There's some place that you're headed. So you're not just like randomly using your compass to roam the woods, but you do have an intent. And that's why I think purpose and intention are so important. You know, I talk about that there are three lenses to the future. First is as a professional, and then it's as a human, and then it's as a member of society. And the information that's located across all of those are really important. So your values, what you're uniquely curious about, what you're worried about, what you're excited about are really important pieces of information that go feed into the work, right? It needs to be integrated. Those things can't be can no longer be bifurcated. I care about this over here, but I perform this way over there. Those things need to be much more tightly aligned. And then answering again that you're a member of society. So what are the expectations and opportunities as part of that? And if you use all that, right, then you know how to be a better guide and how to, again, sense and respond more confidently. Yeah, I like that. So let's shift this more directly to artificial intelligence in how this the big change, and we're still early on in the summer of AI series, so there's a lot more to come. When everybody was talking about how AI would work in the future, then it was going to take over these low-level, not highly skilled jobs. And we found in the last nine months, literally, that it has changed a lot. And it started to take over jobs that are more higher-level thinking, creative writing, art, things like that. And that has scared a lot of people and made a lot of people really excited. And uh, a lot of people still don't even understand what's going on there. So how do you look at this thing that we've learned in the last nine months about how it's not just rote things that it's taking over, but it's doing other things beyond that? Yeah. I mean, I was on a panel years ago at South by Southwest about whether or not AI could be creative. And my two counterparts said no. And I was like, heck yeah. Right. I envisioned that we were going to walk into our house at some point. We saw the movie Her, which I actually rewatched now 10 years later. It's amazingly how prescient they were on some things, a few things not, but many things it was. But the idea that you'd walk into your house, right? It would know what kind of day you've had. And all of a sudden music would be generated that would be in whatever that style is that yeah, either need to be like pumped up or I need to be calmed down or I need to be more connected, like whatever it is that sort of it senses I need at that moment based on the experience that I've had. And I would have it specific just for me right? That is already starting to happen. Just, you know, we're at the very, very, very beginning of it. I talk to people about we're about 1% into this future, this world mm-hmm. that we are sensing is shifting and changing. And so it's going to take on lots and lots of forms, but those are the kinds of things that I, people argue was impossible. And now we're seeing is possible. So creativity is a synthesis. It's about being able to take all these inputs and being able to, um, to wrap them together differently, weave them together differently. So here we are. Computers are surprisingly good at that. It didn't come out of nowhere. We knew that this was coming. You know, when they were first training GPT in 2019, they were going to use Reddit to train it. And I thought, why are they using Reddit? Like that cannot be like the the data set that is deciding conversational AI for all of society. Like, <laughs> like time yeah. out. Right? <laughs> Hold on. And Have you ever I, been there? <laughs> yeah. It's like, especially then it was even, I think it was way, probably even worse than it is now. I think I've settled into now my relationship with Reddit, but at the time I was like, no, and so just thinking about like how we train these things and what the what we're unleashing around it, I was thinking, I was worrying a lot about synthetic media, 
right? What was going to happen when we say go trust the science, you know, go to the science. Well, the science can be fabricated at this point, yeah. right? The article can be fabricated. It's soon we'll have a speech that will be fabricated. We've seen photos that are fabricated. So there's this thing, it's a whole new thing that we need to wrap our heads around. I think the history teachers might be the best prepared for this moment, because when you go back through history, you realize we've hit these moments before, right? When the printing press first came out, I mean, it was freaked out that they, the monks were going to be able to control the scrolls and anybody was going to be able to write something and disseminate something. I go back to Hamilton and Jefferson back in the day when they were trying to persuade us that our government's financial structure should be set up one way versus the other. And they were very much at odds at each other. They would print anonymous pamphlets and share them out to everybody. Also be very personal in their attacks on each other and somehow farmers figured out like what was true and what was not true so again these are capacities and literacies that we're going to have to build that we don't have fully grokked yet so it's you know moments of transition are scary and hard but i always look at the uh, tremendous opportunities you don't want to let's say i don't want fire because it can burn down a house i don't right. want some other amazing tool because it can be misused yeah. i think the issue is a society what do we think that our humanity's bill of rights should be around that so that we can build it safely. Yeah, absolutely. I want to get into that in just a second, but you talked about speech being fabricated and I actually did an episode that was entirely generated with an AI voice. That sounds remarkably like me. That's episode 537. If you're listening, the first episode in the summer of AI series. And what was so amazing about it is that as I was listening to it, it sounded so much like me that I couldn't really tell the difference unless I was listening very closely. And I imagine even regular listeners of this podcast will hear that and think Jethro just sounds a little off today, which happens on occasion. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so that's, that's not too well, surprising. In now it's going to be so much more smoothly and maybe in months from now, but this idea, again, we're so, so, so early. So an early prototype version, we came that close. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so it's just going to keep getting more refined and more smooth. Yep. How did you do it? How did you create it? I'm glad you asked that because I also did, I put in there an excerpt from what I did in uh, last year using Descript's overdub feature, which took my podcast recordings and made a voice from it, which was okay, but it wasn't that great. But this one I used 11 labs, which their voices are really fantastic. And I've done a few other things with it. But the thing that is amazing is that those are just two of the many options that are out there. In fact, just this morning, I saw an article about how you can take music and clip a part of a song, and then it will create more from that song. So if you want to have like the same feeling to it or whatever, I think that's something that's pretty amazing. Like you said, we're just barely getting started. And barely. So the text exchange with my 20 year old daughter this morning was she's really interested in dreams and she's a neuropsychology student. And some of her curiosity and interest is going to be around this all around dreams and the role that they play in our psychological well-being. And I said, imagine at some point when there will be a way to record your dreams, which I really do believe we are going to get to yeah. some point where you're dreaming, right? It records your dream. It can go through an interpreter in the morning and it can give you a sense of if you're anxious, if you're excited, it could give you some meditation, like it could literally be a life coach for you in some way in using that. But the other side of it is what if then it turns it into a synthetic media generator where all of a sudden it turns your dream into a video that you can actually go watch again. Yeah. She goes, I love, it's my favorite TV because it's started every night. I think is yeah. what she said. That's something That's about awesome. being a rolling star. And I said, who needs Shonda Rhimes at that point when your brain is creating all this crazy stuff at night and you get to go view it the next day? Like there's like, like, 
just re- recognizing like just how dramatically things are going to shift and change are just oh, yeah. I think kind of mind-boggling and I'm very very fortunate and you know I laugh that it's an AI summer when the reality is it's going to be AI forever that's right um, yep. but I became curious about this eight years ago and joined an AI startup back in the day with a really brilliant pioneer named Doug Lennon when we were trying to commercialize a specific version of teaching large models back in the day and so I feel better prepared the most for the moment that we're in. And I'm still like just amazed how quickly it's happening and how it's being disseminated, right? The fact that OpenAI made this open source for everybody to be able to go Mm -hmm. do around the world. Like if you're in Zimbabwe, you must have been like, what the hell just happened? But they didn't just put it in the hands of a few private companies. They gave us all the chance. So this amazing invitation right now for all of us to jump in. There are some guides that you'll point them to that are going to be really good coaches for prompting and understanding how this impacts education specifically. It's a very, very exciting time to be an educator. I think finally get to fulfill the promise of personalized education, more dynamic education, a new kind of skill sets that we need to have, not just rote memorization. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Picture this, a student drowning in tabs, tools, and notes, struggling to piece together a research project. Sounds familiar, right? Now, imagine all of that streamlined under one roof. That's Scribble. Scribble is more than just a tool. It's a game changer. Students can curate, annotate, cite, and write all in one place. Collaborative annotations, check. Automatic citations, check. Real-time feedback for educators, you bet. And the best part is it's not just about making tasks easier, about freeing up time for higher-level learning and critical thinking. Are you worried about AI plagiarism? With Scribble, students show their authentic work process, making it genuine and credible. And I mentioned it won the Soup's Choice Award for College and Career Readiness. So if you're ready to transform the way your school approaches research and writing, head over to scribble.com and see the magic for yourself. That's S-C-R-I-B-L-E.com. Yeah, very exciting. So let's talk about what it's unlocking for education and what that looks like, because there's a lot of people who are really afraid of it. In fact, I just had someone text me the other day and shared the ultimate irony. They were using chat GPT to write a academic honesty policy that precluded kids from using chat GPT. And I just think that that idea is incredibly fascinating. Yeah, precluding is an interesting word as opposed to guidelines about how to use ChatGPT or generative AI. I think that's really interesting. I spent an afternoon with ChatGPT drafting a humanity bill of rights. So I was like, everyone's worried about just about AI or generative AI. The fact is we're also going to have chips in our brain. We're going to have all kinds of bioengineering you know, questions that are going to come up. Like this is not just a moment in time for this little technology, quote unquote. It is across all of these exponential technologies. So we're going to have to think about how do we build better Uh, decision-making framing around that. And early in my career, I worked in advertising and there was a guru named David Ogilvy, who started Ogilvy and Mather, who had a phrase that said, give me the freedom of a tightly defined strategy. If you have a really good strategy, then anything you create around it is fair game. But if you have a loose strategy, then everyone's trying to figure out if it's right or not right. And so I thought if we had a tightly defined strategy of saying, as humans, these are the 10 or 12 things that we can all agree on that we want to ensure that these technologies do in service of us as civilization, then anything around that is fair. Right. But we have to do that. So for me, I really come at it more from, and it was fun to do this with ChatGPT because I was like, how would I do it? He's like, well, you have to assemble all the world leaders. And I'm like, but you know more about technically and theoretically than all the world's. You know, if you've really been trained, hopefully as broadly, which we don't know, by the way, 
how ChatGPT was what it was exactly. trained on, yeah. which to me is one of the biggest gaps right now. But if we assume that it has a global perspective, then help me write this. And so it was fun to draft it together. Do I think that it was perfect? No. Do I think that we just hand it to the UN and say, here we are? No. But it's a great tool to be able to start expanding the conversation and having this conversation with someone, right? So I love that the principal did that. Unfortunately, I think it's from the wrong intention, right? I don't yeah. think it's about to shut it down. I think it's about how to use it wisely. What's yes. the freedom of a tightly defined strategy that lets us do it well? And I think, but again, and I have compassion because we're learning. So if I can give an example, you know, when iPads first came to our school district many years ago, we're very fortunate that and when my kids were growing up, we were really well-resourced school that was able to both have iPads and ed techs that helped us. Yeah. But what I went to a meeting that the principal or that the superintendent had to explain some of this to parents. And he gave this really great example of when the iPad first came into the classroom, the teachers were, oh, I can just like use digital books. I can basically take analog material and I can put it into this digital device. And it sort of was just this digital reading thing. And then depending on the teacher, sometimes a few weeks, sometimes a few months, the next level of learning was, wait a second, I do real-time polling in my classroom and see who understands the material and who doesn't. And I can shift what I'm speaking about in real time and I have to wait three days for when I get the quiz back, which was mm -hmm. eye-opening. But wait a second, I can do real-time course correction and teaching. And then they were like, well, wait a second, we can start to do like collaborative projects with other students around the world and we can do more multimedia things. And they opened up the whole toolbox of what was possible for students to be able to create with. But it was a process. Right. If we had said on day one, and by the way, you can do global collaboration by doing videos and multimedia, blah, blah, blah. That would have been way too overwhelming for them. They had to go through this learning curve to understand this leads to this, leads to this. And again, some were faster than others. Some were teachers for other people. But now you recognize it's a pretty standard tool that, again, fortunate school districts get a chance to work with. I don't know if all do yet. We work through the parental issues because parental parents were super scared about what to do with their kids. Yeah. They're not the guy they could. And partly it's because at home, we hadn't set up digital hygiene conversations and any kind of real structure around that. So parents felt off guard. So these are all things. Like it's an ecosystem, right? It requires that we have all these various parts in place and conversations in different ways. And we're just, we need to take a deep breath. We've been That's here before. Yeah. And we're going to be fine. And my daughter is still, my only one of my three is still on campus and she uses it every day. Super grateful to have it. She does it within accordance to how her professors are guiding her. Some are more forward thinking than others, um, but it's going to be a funny conversation at some point when we look back at this moment and realize that people were trying to regulate it. Yeah. And I'm starting my doctoral program this fall. And in my interview with them, I said, look, if you're going to tell me that I can't use chat GPT or some sort of AI to help me do this better, then I'm not interested in attending your school because I don't want to be educated as though it's 1980. I want to be educated as though it's today. And so if you, like, I'm not going to sign academic integrity thing that says I can't use this. And if that's the case, then I'm out. And there's no- Then it's not the program you want to be in. And actually this right. goes back to the AI conversation in general. So years ago, I was invited to give a convocation address to the Virginia Military Institute. I was very excited to go and do this opening convocation. And then one of the cadets that met me and was giving me a tour of whatever the fort or whatever they call their campus. He had just graduated in cybersecurity. And I was like, great. I said, like, how'd you like your AI class? And he's like, oh, I never took one. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> he's like, uh, he goes, yeah, you know, it didn't fit into my syllabus. And since there's a time, I'm like, you're going into cybersecurity. That is literally the most fundamental technology that you will be using in any way, shape, or form. And no one introduced this to you. So part of it is frustration that the campus didn't. But I'm also trying to teach students that they have to find their own way to be able to get this information. It's online. You can take an AI course in multiple different ways. I'm actually, I've been pondering whether or not we create and why I should care about AI course for non-tech students. So they just understand how it's impacting all aspects of their life, right? now 
know and how they can use it at some point with no code, low code building to solve all kinds of issues and things that they want to do to get them more curious about it. But I was equally horrified and frustrated that this young man was so unprepared as he was going out into this work to go do this, into the world to do this work that he was passionate about. So it is incumbent upon schools to get caught up on this stuff. And if not, it's really important for students to go figure it out. And by the way, the more students have to go outsourcing the things that they think are really relevant, the less relevant that building and that tuition are going to be. That is so true. So how do we do this, especially in a K-12 setting? How do we expose them appropriately and in a way that is going to be beneficial for them to what is possible with AI? I don't know that I know, you know, pedagogically, is that the right word? Pedagogically. Pedagogically, yeah. How to do that. What's interesting is in China, they are starting in, you know, kindergarten or early years teaching basic principles of whatever it is you need to learn how to understand how AI works. I know that what doesn't work for me is when we always go back to the history and say, well, Ada Lovelace did blah, blah, blah. And in 1956, someone coined the term when they were on a campus of Dartmouth. And I'm like, why did we always start the conversation there? And then we get very technological. One of my close friends who I really do love, chief data scientist at a company that I'm still an advisor for now, an AI services company, recently spoke to a a whole group of people in Austin, like a very general audience. And he gave this like so complex drawing of RNNs and CNNs and da, da, da. I'm like, I have no idea what that means. Right. So really, I think humanizing it and helping them understand that this is a tool that can help us analyze data faster. It can make decisions quicker. It can do things at scale, like, you know, count the number of leaves on a tree that a human would take too long to do. Like, what are the sort of use cases for it and some of the logics that go building it and how do you do it safely? Like one of the things I champion is the Responsible AI Institute or I'm really interested in how we scale the conversation on ethics and safety that needs to get built in from the very beginning. I sat with a CTO of a major tech company, which I will not tell you the name of because it's not a flattering comment, but he and I were on a panel at one point and we had some time to chit chat and we were talking about how he's building AI into this large organization. I asked about the ethics framework. He goes, oh, that'll come next. That one's messier and it's kind of hard. We're, we're, you know, we're, we'll figure that one out later. And I'm like, dude, no. <laughs> that, that, you start now with that one, yeah. right? It is a little messier. It is a little harder, but it is something that we need to do very quickly. And it's not even just about how you build the algorithm in a thoughtful way. It's also about how you label the data. Right. We have people who are labeling data now around the world that are going to pay 97 cents an hour and like trying to figure out if that's fair and ethical. The same way we had sweatshops as we we're manufacturing clothing. Right. We have this same question as we start to think about the humans that are involved in this chain. It's not all machines. So anyway, there's just a lot we're trying to learn. It would be great to talk to people from other countries that are a little further ahead on this train and ask about where they see the openings. But right now, I just want people to be curious about it. Yeah. I I think starting with curiosity is a great place to be because you made a comment before we started recording that I want you to say again about teachers with it would be better than teachers without it. Talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, I, again, people ask me all the time what the future of education is. And I think that there'll be really huge structural changes around this. Like they imagine that we're still going to pay what I'm paying right now for my daughter to go to an out-of-state college to do blah, 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 will seem crazy X amount of years from now. However, in the moment right now, AI is not going to replace teachers. It just makes the teachers who have it that much more impactful, that much more effective, that much more productive, that much more engaging than the teachers who choose not to. And Again, we're going to gravitate to those who we do think are preparing our children best for the future. Part of the reason I think we've got a mental health crisis right now amongst youth I mean, there's many things we can point to, but one of the things I think fundamentally is they don't feel prepared for the future. They know that their education right now is not matching up with what it is that the world is doing out here. And whether they can say that or that they just feel it in here, it's a mismatch. 
And so we're going to be, we're going to have more choices. We're going to gravitate to those who think are preparing us well and holding us well and teaching us well. And so again, leaning into this and being curious about it, it doesn't mean you have to say yes to everything. It doesn't mean that you have to open up and and like sort of lean back and, and just let the machine run over you. It just means understanding how you want to work with it. There's a tool that I've created. Can I tell you about this little tool? Yes, please. Thank you. So I call it, it's kind of like a SWOT analysis that people use in business, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, but it's basically a matrix. It's called the RIF map. So when you look at the future, what are you relieved by, inspired by, frustrated by, and frightened by? And so if you imagine like doing this quadrant, it's not like you have one feeling about this, right? You have multiple emotions around it. I do it with teams. It'd be actually really interesting to do with teachers where you work with like three or four people. They're all putting post-it notes together about observations that they have right now about how things are shifting and changing. And then they have to work together to figure out where to map them. And what you find is that one person's inspired by something is the same thing that somebody's frightened by. And then you have more empathy and you can have a more interesting conversation about why, because you realize it's actually more nuanced. And then what you also realize is that we're often biased to the bottom, to the things that we're frustrated by and frightened by, and not to the things at the top that are relieved and inspired by. And so if you can balance out that narrative, it makes it a lot easier to lean into the work. Because if you're always scared, then like you don't get excited about going toward it. If you can see the possibilities, you are a little bit more drawn to it. And then lastly, I think that what I have found is the things that I'm frustrated by or frightened by are the places I need to go and activate. I wrote a book about leadership because I was frustrated that people are thinking too small and are thinking too siloed and are thinking from an old construct. And so I wrote a book about it, right? You're doing this podcast because you're, you know, are frustrated that people aren't moving fast enough and you want to be able to open up Aperture. But even the things that you're frightened by are the things to lean into. I joined the AI movement again, eight years ago, probably because I was curious, but probably because I wanted to guide it safely. I could see the scary parts and I want to be better informed so that I could move it in the right direction. I want to accelerate the things that I'm excited by and I want to blunt the things that are frightening and I can only do it if I'm in it. Yeah, not if I'm just complaining about it from the outside. So I have found a very simple tool. People have done it with their students. Actually, people have done it with kids to help them make sense of their futures. It's just, it's so simple but it just helps people riff on the future in a way that opens more insight and more possibility. Yeah, I like that. I may steal that for an upcoming AI presentation I'm doing in a couple of weeks. And you know, I take uh, it. It's 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 you know open sourced. Yeah, that's right. And that's I think part that's of it too, right? I'm not trying to control it. What we're trying to do is all help us level up because I'm going to learn something from you that I'll be able to share to corporate audiences. Yeah, totally. So in closing. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate your time and your thoughts on everything. You wrote a book called Leadering that I think people should definitely check out. Do you want to give just a little plug for that and tell us why people should look at that? Yeah, I mean, we have the book and then we also just go to nancygiordano.com. We've got a few videos. We broke it down into like one to three minute videos so that if you don't want to take, it's described as a chewy read because it's kind of got a lot in it. Uh. But really the thesis is that we have built a way of thinking and doing certainly in the business world that is based on a 20th century way of working. There was an industrial era way of thinking that was static and closed and hierarchical and designed intentionally to root out variances and that could shake things up because we were trying to consistently deliver and for short-term results, right? And it worked really well in the industrial era to scale things and to lift people out of poverty. Um, It had a very narrow stakeholder group. And so it ignored a bunch of externalities that now we're dealing with around environmental health and physical health, mental health, wage gap, which are now becoming more, as a member of society, more visible, but it's a noun, it's static. And what we need now is we're moving into a world that's much more dynamic as a verb. So if you imagine moving it from a noun to leadering, which is designed as a set of practices, not designed, actually, it's just it's an emergent set of practices that if you can become more comfortable with, 
like you think about empathy versus efficiency. You think about building th th things that are prepared, like you're more prepared than just a solid plan that you're going to try and execute perfectly. You think about curiosity, again, in the role that we play, then the incentives for curiosity. Like there's all these ways of being able to hone these practices. And the people who do that, the subtitle is how visionary leaders play bigger, because those who do it are playing really big. They're using their resources for tremendous impact not just for growth and financial profitability, but for really trying to have meaningful impact. And so it's filled with examples of all kinds of leaders and organizations that are leadering. And I think it gives people hope that this is not just hope, but like encouragement, inspiration, like there's another way of thinking about all this. And if we build the future with that mindset, man, it's going to be fantastic. And this is why I'm excited. It, it's possible. It's right there. We just have to transition to this way yeah. of learning and, and practicing and doing. I think that's great. And I, I totally agree. Thank you so much for being here. NancyGiordano.com. You can go check her out, learn more about her and what she's doing and follow her on everything's there. NancyGiordano.com. Um, <laughs> well, and thank you so much for all the educators out there who are spending time with you learning and that are doing this job that I actually think is one of the hardest jobs right now on the planet because of all of the conflicting constituencies who are telling them how to do it better. And so That's on top right. of that, we're also trying to learn and take really good care of our kids. So I just want to do a really big, deep, grateful thank you. To thank you. Edited by Gage Sanderson.